As uh, many of you know, I attended uh, Westmont College, this small Christian school just south of Santa Barbara in Montecito. Those of you familiar with the area, some of you have been there. Attended there many years ago. And in this small uh, Christian community that was there, one of the things that was uh, difficult, it didn't happen very often, often, it was rare, but one of the things that was difficult is when a student uh, grievously broke some policy of the school or actually broke a law and they were expelled or sent away. And of course, it was most devastating to that student, but we knew them and loved them and it was just like, how could this be? And it was devastating for us as well. I want to share with you one of the stories. It's a rare thing that, that happened there, but one of the things uh, that happened where students were uh, expelled. Uh, Westmont is in one of the most beautiful and expensive uh, areas of our state. In fact, uh, the homes around there are these just incredible uh, estates. It's kind of a fuzzy picture, but Westmont is just down there on the left, the, the little buildings that you can see. But dotted all around these foothills of Santa Barbara are these palatial uh, estates in Montecito. One of them today is Oprah Winfrey's estate. She didn't own it back uh, many years ago when I was in college, but I can remember as a young man running. Uh, I would go for runs from the campus and would run by that estate that Oprah owns now, 65 acres of incredibly manicured gardens and oak trees in this palatial home. I can just remember running by there and you know, trying to get glimpses and see you know, what would it be like to be back there and be in a place like that. Well, some of the students at Westmont uh, had more than a desire to glimpse what it was like behind those gates and over those walls. And so some of the students, and I could easily share some of the foolish things that I did in college, but this isn't one of them that I did, but some of them uh, would scale these walls and fences. They came to realize that uh, these homes, many of them, uh, you know, the people that owned them were only there a month a year, a couple months a year. They're in their homes in the Mediterranean and their home on this island in Hawaii. And so the gardeners are there and the maintenance people are there, but there's nobody living there. And so they would hop over the walls and they would enjoy the swimming pool and the jacuzzi in these homes in the evening. And they did this frequently to the point where it got to be comfortable. And so once they scaled those walls and they got in that pool, they got in the jacuzzi, they're rationalizing this, they're, we're not going to do any damage, we're not stealing anything, we're just going to leave footprints that are going to evaporate, and then we're going to go back. And they, they did this uh, over and over, of course, until one day they met the Santa Barbara Sheriff's deputies while they were in the pool in the jacuzzi. And they were arrested and they were expelled from school. And many of us were just devastated, like, how can this happen? I'm telling you this story this morning because what happened to them while they're sitting in the jacuzzi in the pool having conversations, just having fun and, and just whatever, just they would forget that this beautiful environment that they were in was not their own. They would forget that they, they, this was not theirs. They did not own this, but they were living as though it were their own. And I want to suggest that you and I do something similar to that. We live as though something that does not belong to us belongs to us. 
We live as though we own something that we really don't own. And what is it? What am I suggesting we do, that we do similar to these jacuzzi occupiers? What am, I, what am I suggesting? I'm suggesting our own selves. That we forget that God owns us. That Christ bought us at a price. And we are his. And we can forget that he is our master, he is our Lord, and and he owns us. Now, the paradox, the irony of this is that we are actually made free when we recognize that he owns us and he bought us at a price. But we can go about life just, just trying to be comfortable and just trying to do this and trying to navigate this and trying to do that, forgetting that we were bought at a price and that he owns us. This truth is at the very center of Psalm 100. It is not just in Psalm 100, but it is throughout the scriptures. If you profess to be a believer in Christ, I want to remind you this morning that you are not your own, that we have the word of God to guide us in how we are to live, and we are here to bring him honor and glory. That's why we're here, and he has given us instructions on how to live for him, our owner, our master. Psalm 100 is one of those psalms in the book of Psalms, in the Psalter, that is structured so that the central word in the psalm reveals the central theme of the psalm. There are many psalms like this. This phenomenon of locating a poem's main point at its structural center, whether it be a word, a phrase, or an entire verse, occurs many times in the psalms including the most well-known psalm, maybe the most well-known passage in the Bible, Psalm 23. We don't have time to get into that today, but there's probably a dozen or two or three psalms where the very center word or center sentence or center phrase of that psalm reveals the theme and everything builds around that in that particular psalm. Psalm 100 is one of those kinds of psalms. And if I just put the text in English of Psalm 100... The word that's more or less kind of at the center of the screen here is the word that is the center of that psalm. We are, the word is his people. In Hebrew, it's just one word. The word, the little pronoun his is kind of attached to the end of it. It's just one word. We are his people. He has redeemed a people from the earth. And if you are a believer in Jesus, you are one of them. We are his. He owns us. He paid a price, and he bought us. This particular truth is not only uh, in this psalm. It's not only uh, in the psalm, but it is throughout the scriptures. If we look at Psalm 103, kind of the verse that includes this word that is at the center of the psalm, it says this, Know that the Lord Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people. The sheep of his pasture were his. Again, this isn't just an Old Testament or a psalm truth. It's even maybe more clear, more specific in the New Testament. Could go to many passages, but one of them, 1 Corinthians 6. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Now, this psalm has a lot to do with thanksgiving and joy. And I want to suggest that one of the reasons you and, I, you and I might not be experiencing thanksgiving and joy in our hearts, one of the reasons we may not be sleeping really well at night, may be that we have forgotten that we don't own ourselves. 
that our master bought us. You are not your own. You were bought at a price, and he's called us to honor him and to glorify him in certain ways. We're going to be reminded of some of those ways this morning. But before we go through this brief psalm, let me remind you of the price that he paid that is referred to in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You and I are so valuable. We were bought at a price. What was the price that he paid for us? You know the price. You know the price that he paid for us. Let me read to you the words of Spurgeon as he describes the price that was paid for you, for me, for the people of God to be redeemed. Listen to his words. He describes this price paid to redeem you, to redeem a people for his glory. He he, he writes this. There in the midnight hour, amidst the olives of Gethsemane, kneels Emmanuel, the Son of God. He groans. He pleads in prayer. He wrestles. See the beady drops stand on his brow. Drops of sweat, but not of such sweat as pours from men when they earn the bread of life, but the sweat of him who is procuring life itself for us. It is blood, it is crimson blood, great gouts of it are falling to the ground. O soul, thy Savior speaks to thee from Gethsemane at this hour, and he says, here and thus I bought thee, I bought you with a price. Come, stand and view him in the agony of the olive garden, and understand at what a cost he procured thy deliverance. Track him in all his path of shame and sorrow, till you see him on the pavement, mark how they bind his hands and fasten him to the whipping post. See, they bring the scourges and the cruel Roman whips. They tear his flesh. They make deep furrows on his blessed body, and the blood gushes forth in streams, while rivulets from his temples, where the crown of thorns has pierced them, join to swell the purple stream. From beneath the scourges, he speaks to you with accents soft and low. And he says, my child, it is here. And thus, I bought you. I bought you with a price. But see him on the cross itself. When the consummation of all has come, his hands and feet are fountains of blood. His soul is full of anguish, even to heartbreak. And there, ere the soldier pierces with the spear his side, bowing down, he whispers, To you and to me, it was here and thus I bought thee with a price. This is the price that was paid, church, for me, for you, for us as a people. We are his people, the center of Psalm 100. I'm suggesting this morning that we forget that he owns us, that he's our master, that he bought us at a price. And I'm suggesting that the thanksgiving and the joy that is so prevalent in Psalm 100, that we may not be experiencing that because, like those jacuzzi occupiers, we have forgotten that that this doesn't belong to me. It belongs to him. And freedom and joy ultimately is going to come, ironically, from knowing that he owns me and he bought me. So this is at the center of Psalm 
100. Today is our last uh, psalm. We've had a brief time in the psalms. We will be back in Mark's gospel next week, and that will take us through Easter, and we will finish the gospel of Mark that we have been in for a long time. But the Lord has really put on my heart this, this reality that we as a church, that we as individuals need to be men and women who know the psalms and who pray the psalms. So I kind of have two purposes today. One is Psalm 100 and and what I've already been saying, but I have a broader purpose, and that is that you and I would know our way around the Psalms and that we would be able to pray them and that we would find the Lord and find our own prayer lives in part through praying the Psalms. The, The... Van Gemmeren has really helped me. We've looked at this several weeks. Those of you who've been here every week the last month or so, but I want to look at what he says again in just a moment. I've got five points, I think, this morning. The first one is to pray Psalm 100. I want you to learn to pray the Psalms. There's 150 of them. We're not all going to have intimate prayers with all 150 psalms likely, but some of them we need to know well and to pray, and I'm encouraging you today to learn to pray Psalm 100. Van Gemmeren has helped me a lot, his commentary on the Psalms, and he says in the introduction something really important. I've read it several times. I want to read it again. He says this. He says, the book of Psalms can revolutionize our devotional life, our family patterns, and the fellowship and the witness of the church of Jesus Christ. The book of Psalms is unique. In it, God only, not only speaks to his people, he also encourages us to use the language of the psalms in our individual prayers and praise. By applying these ancient psalms to a new situation, the life of faith, hope, and love of the individual Christian, the Christian family, and the church may be greatly enhanced. And finally, he says the psalms encourage a dialogical relationship, a dialogue, a conversation between God and his children. Though no Old Testament book has been more important in the history of the church than the book of Psalms, we are in danger of losing it. Partly because of lack of use of the Psalms themselves and partly because of lack of use of the skills required for understanding them. Psalm 100 is a psalm that is full of joy and thanksgiving and expression that we would use in our own prayer life to the Lord. Psalm 100 was one that the church in the past was intimately familiar with. I have to say I was somewhat a little bit discouraged as I've been reading about the Psalms and what a vibrant part of the life of the church of Jesus the Psalms have been in previous centuries and how that seems to have gone away to a degree in our day. I hope that's not true for you, but I feel like that's true partly for me. And as I have my pulse on our church family and others, I, I, I feel that's the case. Anybody agree with me on that, that we've kind of gotten away from knowing the Psalms, praying the Psalms, preaching the Psalms, knowing the Psalms? As I was reading and preparing this week, uh, I came across uh, this quote from Spurgeon in his great work, The Treasury of David, this massive work that he compiled over a couple decades on the Psalms, which says something about how influential they were in his life. Speaking of the title of Psalm 100, he says, a psalm of praise, or rather of thanksgiving. This is the only psalm bearing this precise inscription. It is all ablaze with grateful adoration and has for this reason been a great favorite with the people of God ever since it was written. Let us sing the old hundredth is one of the everyday expressions of the Christian church and will be so while men exist whose hearts are loyal to the great king. 
as I, as I read that, I thought, how do you sing Psalm 100? I don't even know how to sing Psalm 100. Has anyone here ever sung Psalm 100? Okay, a few of you, well, at least one of you has. A few of you have. So again, I'm not forget, we don't all have the same experiences. But the church in the 1800s, Psalm 100 was like, you know, how great is our God or amazing grace or how great thou art. One of those, those hymns that, oh, this is, this is a place where I can worship him. This is a song where the church comes together and we just lift our voices up and praise him. That was the case for Psalm 100 in the 1800s and in the centuries prior. As I was looking into it a little bit more, there was a book written in 1854 about entitled A History of the Old Hundredth Psalm Tune with Specimens, in case you're interested, uh, by the Reverend W.H. whatever. This was in the New York Post. There's, there's a, a whole book written about the tune, the music. I'm not a musical person, so I don't really know what I'm talking about here. But a, a whole book written about the tunes that were used in singing Psalm 100 in the life of churches in the 1800s. Let me just share with you how they did it. This was the text. Those of you who, who've sung the old hundredth, you've, you've sung this song. I don't think I've ever sung it. I just wanted to share it with you. So they took Psalm 100 centuries ago, long before the 1800s, and put it to music. And the church, uh, this was one of their great places to go and worship. All people that on earth do dwell, sing to the Lord with cheerful voice. Him serve with mirth or joy. His praise foretell. Come ye before him and rejoice. Know that the Lord is God indeed. Without our aid, he did us make. We are his flock, he doth us feed. And for his sheep, he doth us take. There's that central theme that he owns us, that we're his. We're his sheep. He made us, he created us, he owns us. Oh, enter then his gates with praise. Approach with joy his courts unto. Praise, laud, and bless his name always, for it is seemly so to do because the Lord our God is good, his mercy is forever sure, his truth at all times firmly stood and shall from age to age endure. My understanding is that this psalm was sung to the tomb that we sing the doxology to. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. And I would hum that for you, but then you wouldn't have any idea what the actual tune was. So I won't hum it for you. You, you know, we haven't done that in a while, but you know, that's the tune that this. Those of you that sung this, is that what the tune that you, yeah, that you sung this psalm to? So what am I saying today? I'm not trying to say that we need to go back to the music of the 1800s and sing Psalm 100. If that's what you're hearing me say, I'm not communicating clearly. What I'm saying is we need to know and love the psalms. What type of musical expression or composition or tune that we use is not that important, whether we're singing them or praying them. I'm simply bringing up that the church in previous centuries had this intimate relationship with the psalms. And I'm praying that, that we would be finding our way as individuals and as a church family to the psalms, whether we're praying them, whether we're singing them. And we do sing some of the psalms today as well. So all of this is by way of introduction. What I'm really saying today is that we need to be a people who know and love the whole counsel of God. And I see a part that I think we have neglected. There's a deficiency. This is one of the core values that we have as a church coming out of Acts 20, 27, where Paul writes, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Everything. 
all that is in Scripture, everything that God has given, Paul didn't shrink from the hard parts of Scripture or the ones that we wouldn't gravitate toward naturally. And, and this, is, this is who we want to be as a church as well. And so what I am saying is we need to familiarize ourselves. We don't necessarily need to sing the exact same way that they did in the 1800s. But God, help us to be a people who knows and loves the Psalms, singing them, praying them to you, both individually and corporately. So I'm saying I have five points this morning. The first one is to pray Psalm 100. Let's get into this short psalm briefly here. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. It says, Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Or most of your translations there would say, serve the Lord with gladness. It could be either word. I like the fact that it could be either word. This idea of worship and serving go together. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. In verses 1 and 2, we have this, this presence of joy, this enthusiasm, worshiping him, serving him. I want to suggest that one of the reasons, perhaps, that we don't have this joy at times, that we don't have this thanksgiving, that we don't have this attitude of worship and service, is perhaps that we have ignored the reality that Jesus is our owner, our master, our Lord, and we are just going about our lives exactly just kind of the way that we want. We're, we're not getting in too much trouble, but we're just living the way that we want apart from God's work. Now, it's very easy to pass over the several things that are in this psalm. And one of them is this little phrase at the end of verse 1. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. This psalm, of course, historically, it was given in the context of ancient Israel. They were the people of God. And there was kind of, we could summarize their life, their witness to the nations and the people around them and to the whole globe as, as kind of a come and see. Come and see. That this was kind of how they operated. And they were told when immigrants come and people come who are not Israelites and they come to believe in Yahweh, here's what you do. But it was kind of come and see. And for us living this side of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, we are go and tell kind of people as believers. We are go and tell. And this little phrase is anticipating. When it says, shout for joy to the Lord all the earth, this is a prophetic text, if you will. This is a reminder in the ancient context of ancient Israel reading the psalm that the worship, the shouts for joy, the gladness of humanity is going to spread throughout beyond Israel to the Gentiles, to the whole planet, to the whole earth. And so we have the great commission here in this little phrase, all the earth in verse 1. How is that going to happen? Well, we know now from our perspective, from a gospel perspective, how this was going to happen. God has given us a mission. He has given us a mission, but I'm suggesting like those jacuzzi occupiers that we've kind of forgotten that we are not ourselves and God owns us and he's given us a mission. I'm going to look at what that mission is in a moment. You may be familiar with lots of our companies today have mission statements. Patagonia, a company that makes outdoor equipment and clothing, this is their mission statement. Build the best product. Cause no unnecessary harm. Use business to inspire and implement solutions to the environmental crisis. Pretty cool uh, mission statement for a company. I mean, every company's mission statement is ultimately to make money. 
kind of leave that out of their mission statements, kind of assumed, I think, in most companies. But this is, this is what they're about. This is their mission. What is the mission that our owner, our master, our Lord has given to us, church? The mission he's given us, I remind, I remind myself and I've reminded you of it many times. He's given us a mission right before he ascended to heaven. Here's our mission statement. It's in the scriptures in a variety of ways, but here it is. Jesus said, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Now, I know some of you, this may be front and center in your minds, and you know my mission in life is to make disciples. To the summary, the main verb here, the main mission that we have, if we're going to summarize it, is, are those two words, to make disciples. God has called you and God has called me to pour out my life into loving others and witnessing by loving them, showing them the beauty and the love of Christ, and then by sharing the good news, the gospel of Christ. This is our mission. But I'm suggesting that we have forgotten our mission because we've forgotten that we're not ourselves and we're just kind of looking to be comfortable and just to kind of cruise through life. We're not too dissimilar from those jacuzzi occupiers forgetting that this jacuzzi they're sitting in is not their own. This is our mission. This is what God has called us to. So, Psalm 100, a psalm that is full of praising God and and giving thanks for who we are and worshiping Him with joy. Why might we not feel that? Why might we not be experiencing that? Well, maybe because we haven't received and we're not being prayerful about the mission that he has given to us. That, that, that's here in this little phrase. All the earth, shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. This isn't referring to trees and creation. This is referring to human beings. One day, people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation are going to be worshiping him. So... Point number two this morning is to be a part of spreading his joy to all peoples. Now, some of you who are very observant may have noticed I left something out of the service right before I blessed our kids today. Anybody notice what I left out, what I forgot? Prayer cards. Yeah. Well, a couple of you already knew. I told you before the service I was going to leave it out, so don't tell me, hey, you forgot the prayer cards. So I left it out intentionally. Those of you who are visiting today, where there's prayer cards in the chair in front of you. And what I want to do right now, I'm not going to have an altar call or call you forward or anything like that, but in a sense, I have that spirit, and I want to call you to respond to God's word in a very specific way today, to the mission that Jesus has given us that is here. It's maybe not so intuitive to see, but it's in in the last phrase of, of Psalm 1. And I want to encourage you right now to grab a prayer card and to write on that prayer card and put it in the offering plate that goes around, this will be confidential, a name of someone that you want to witness to, to display the love of Christ to. And that perhaps over time, God is going to give you, by his grace, the opportunity to share the gospel message with them, that Christ died for them, that he rose on the third day, that he loves them and he wants them to follow him and to have the joy and thanksgiving that comes as the psalmist prays and as we pray along with the psalmist in this day dialogical way. So I'm asking you right now, not very many of you are moving, so I'm going to give you some time to like move a little bit, like grab a card if the ushers need to come forward, whatever. I really would like you to grab a card and if the Lord would lead you, I'm not going to, you know, like 
you're not going to like be locked. We're not going to lock all the doors and you don't get out of the building. We're not going to do that. But I, I want to lovingly encourage you to grab a card and to write a name and we will pray for you and that person as we seek to be a church that is on mission, recognizing the master who bought us, recognizing that his will going all the way back to Psalm 100 is for joy, shouts of joy to be going up to the Lord in all the earth, including our neighbors and co-workers and friends and family members and classmates and so on. So our mission statement we've seen I've been very encouraged by the authors of, of this book. Um, their names, uh, the book is called Everyday Church. And speaking to this topic, they, they, they say this. They say, everyday mission. Everyday mission requires everyday missionaries. That's you and I. Everyday missionaries rather than superheroes of the faith. We need to recapture the sense The gospel ministry is not something to be done by pastors with the support of ordinary Christians, but something to be done by ordinary Christians with the support of pastors. God has you all going in all kinds of different places so that you can witness to his glory and his honor and his name, both by the integrity with which you live, the holiness with which you live, and the love with which you show those who desperately need him. So I'm, I'm, I have five points this morning. Pray Psalm 100 from verses 1 and 2. The rest of these are going to go more quickly. From verses 1 and 2, be a part of spreading his joy to all peoples. And then we're going to see what we've already looked at in verse 3. My third point is that we would preach to ourselves that you do not own you. He owns you. This is part of what we see in verse 3 of Psalm 100. Know that that the Lord, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, Jesus is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. Preach to yourself that you do not own you. He owns you. And this, paradoxically, is where we will find freedom and joy and thankfulness. We are part of a great people that spans so many generations. And he's called us to die to ourselves and to live for him. And this is where we're going to find joy and freedom and peace. We see this not only in 1 Corinthians 6, not only in Psalm 100. We also see this truth in Romans chapter 14. Paul writes this there. He says, for none of us lives to himself alone. And none of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. He owns us. We belong to him. And what a person to have as our master, as our owner, as our Lord. So preach this to yourself today, this week, that you do not own you. He owns you. Point number four comes out of verse five. We'll come back to verse four in a moment. But out of verse five, the scripture says that the most loving and the most gracious person in the universe owns you. Uh, Ownership can sound terrible because we're all sinners, but if the person that owns us, the person that is the master is the Lord Jesus, who's the most loving and gracious person in the world, then we ought to be thankful and joyful, and then we can pray Psalm 100 in, in genuineness and integrity. He loves you, and he has for generations past and the future loved human beings. He has loved his church, his people, corporately all those who have believed in him and he loves individual believers both so preach to yourself that he loves you 
We see this in verse 5. We haven't looked at the verse yet. Let's look at verse 5. It says, For the Lord is good, and His love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations, including this generation, including us at Cornerstone, wherever you're from, if you're visiting, in 2018. Can you believe it's 2018? Does that sound crazy? It sounds like a movie title. For all generations, He's been good. He has seen those folks through the 1800s who were singing the old hundredth. And he will see us through. He loves us. He's there. You know, we sometimes have this reverse pride. Um, this, what I mean by reverse pride is we sometimes think, well, you know, God loves that person sitting over there on the other side of the sanctuary. He likes that person. He likes this person. I wish I could be like that. But there's really a pride in that kind of thought that, that you are not one of his children, that you weren't adopted into his family, that he didn't pay that price for you just as much as everyone else who's a part of his church. He loves you. His love endures forever into your life, into your heart, and his faithfulness continues. He wants to see you through. This is what verse 5 is telling us. Final point this morning, point number 5, verse number 4. Thanksgiving and praise flow from the believer's heart when you do not own you, when we realize we don't own ourselves. Thanksgiving and praise come. We see this in, in verse 4 where it says, Enter his gates with thanksgiving. This is the language of Israelites who would be entering into the temple area. They're going in with thanksgiving. They're going into those courts with praise, wanting to lift God up, giving thanks to him and to praise his name. This is Psalm 100 is there to help us to do this. Now, as we wind down this message, as we come to a close, some of us here today, I know that you are involved in, in broken relationships, and it's very hard to be thankful and to rejoice. Some of you are, are struggling with grief and loss, and it's very hard to shout for joy to the Lord as the psalm opens. It's hard to have thanksgiving and praise. So I want to say to you that the good news of the gospel is that we don't have to wait for that season of grief or for that relationship to be restored in order to have joy. The power of the gospel is so great. Christ is so beautiful and so rich and so capable, our master and our owner, that simultaneous to grief, simultaneous to this relationship not working out, whether it's a spouse, whether it's children, whether it's someone you care about, simultaneous with this brokenness that we experience, the joy, can, the joy of the Lord can still be ours as we get close to the cross and the one who bought us and we can pray with the psalmist as he prays in Psalm 100. This is what God is calling us to this morning. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Father in heaven, we ask as individuals and as a church family that we would shout for joy to you, God, that we would join you in having a heart for your mission to spread the gospel to every tribe, every nation, every tongue. And that includes the people who live down our road, that person we see at the grocery store, that person at school, at work, the family member, that your heart, God, is for them to shout for joy to the Lord. Help us to be a part of the mission that you have given to us. Lord, help us, as we're about to sing in a moment, but even throughout this week, to worship you, to serve you with gladness. 
to come before you with joyful songs, whether they're old-fashioned songs like they sang in the 1800s or whether they are rock songs, we pray that Jesus would be at the center of them. We pray that we would know that our God, our Lord Jesus, made us, and we are his. We don't own ourselves. Help us to enter into his presence regularly this week with thanksgiving and with praise. Help us to remind ourselves that he's good and his love endures forever that he's faithful to me this week and to you this week. We pray this Psalm 100 in Jesus' name and for the sake of his kingdom. Amen.